0: I'm Adam Rappaport. Welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Today we will talk to the man who spent 10 Advil fueled days in the world's greatest drinking city, also known as Tokyo. We're going to talk to one of America's most successful chefs about his latest business venture. But first, joining us in studio is restaurant and drinks editor Andrew Knowlton and author, illustrator, man of many opinions and a guy who wears custom-made socks. Ben Shot, ladies and gentlemen. Ben, thank you for joining us. Good day to you. Ben is our sort of in-house etiquette expert for Bon Appetit. Um, he did a piece in our 2014 Thanksgiving issue called Giving and Thanking a Miscellany of Modern Manners for Hosts and Guests on this Most Culinary of Holidays. And Ben, what did you get for this, this article?
1: Um, I am honored to have won a James Beard Award.
0: Yeah, James Beard Journalism Award. A Which couple-
1: is the, I'm told, the Oscars of the food world. <laughs> it's a big, huge medal with a big, bold man on it. <laughs> There's
0: actually a reason you're joining us in the studio today, because in our May uh, 2015 travel issue, we brought you back to do a sort of a travel etiquette guide. Never schlep a sheep and other essential etiquette for the globe-trotting gourmand. All right, first topic of discussion in the page, flying the friendly skies. Now, I have some opinions on what one should wear on the plane, but I imagine you have a few more.
1: I think you should channel JFK and Jackie O. I think you should dress up for the event. I think.
0: Just in general in life, you should channel them?
1: Frankly, I mean. As Tom Ford says, being well dressed is a form of good manners in itself. But just because, you know, air travel has just become so commonplace and unpleasant and miserable doesn't mean you should sink to their level. You should withhold and maintain a nineteen fifty standard of, of elegance. Maybe not with the hat, with the overhead bins, because they do get <laughs> crushed. But certainly, you know, wear a jacket, wear a tie, you know, buff your shoes. Come on, make an effort, kids.
0: But does this mean you get to smoke on the plane also? I always smoke on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> You're also right, if your terminal has a Shake Shack, you win. But don't bring malodorous food onto the plane and expect not to be loathed. Pack fruit, veg, nuts, and berries and create an oasis of freshness at 30,000 feet. All right, listen, I am a big fan of bringing one's on food onto the plane, but I'm not going to be bringing nuts and berries. I, I'm going to bring a, at least a good sandwich or something. And Andrew, where do you draw the line in terms of what's okay to bring on the plane food-wise, what's not okay?
2: Well, I will bring nuts and berries. I have no problem with nuts and berries yeah, or well, a Shake kind of- Shack burger. My problem is... I was sitting next to a guy a couple weeks ago and he was mixing his salad. Like he had ranch dressing, he squeezed it out of a thing and then he goes about to eat it right next to me and I'm working on my computer and all of a sudden like a few flecks of ranch dressing because he's a sloppy eater and then he ends up just you know throwing it all over the floor you just have to be a human being when you're on an airplane like act like a human being all
0: right so you've landed in your destination whether it's i don't know los angeles or let's say rome or barcelona or something um and sort of sort of integrating yourself into society one point i love that you make ben um is is find a place and and become a regular if during your stay there What, what do you mean by that
1: I think the temptation is when you go somewhere like, as you say, Rome, is to see everything. And it's true. And so the danger is you're there for five days and you try and do as many things as possible. There's something really joyful about, say, finding somewhere to have coffee in the morning and you go there three or four times during your stay. You go at the same time every day. And it's incredible how quickly you become a regular, especially if you're, you know, crazy American or crazy English going somewhere in a foreign country. You become somebody that they then say hi to. They know you. And you really get into the culture. You become norm from cheers almost immediately.
2: Yeah. I mean that's that's one of the first things I think I do when I go to Oslo or you know Japan for that instance. Your it's wife like, is from Norway, yeah. So, so I go there. there quite a bit, but like I, I I do seek out that place even if I'm in Cincinnati where I can meet the locals. I get tips from the locals, and then you go back at all times of the day and you have a place to kind of unwind or maybe get Wi-Fi or just get a drink, you know, because you can't. And I'm with Ben, like I'm. I'm quality over quantity when it comes to traveling and and going to sites and all that. I'd rather spend five hours at a bar drinking coffee or a Uh, a, (laughs) or a spritzer than trying to hit every single church that is in existence
1: in the city of Rome. And also travel is exhausting. And I think the danger is you do so many things and you feel there's an itinerary you've got to tick things off that after a bit you just get... Sort of culture fatigue. I think there's something really pleasing about having a, a, a local base, as you say, to get tips and also feel like you're part of a city rather than feel like you're always on the outside looking in.
0: Yeah, if you're if you're always, you don't always want to be a tourist. You want to be at some point a regular. Um, what about the language? When when you're traveling abroad to a foreign country, do you make an effort to sort of know some phrases? What's your policy on that?
1: I try. I mean, I, I'm terrible at foreign languages. I have an elaborate stutter that only appears in foreign languages, which is deeply embarrassing. But here's the thing. You know, we're so used to people speaking English uh, in England and in America that we forget if you make an effort, no matter how clumsy, how inarticulate, how you get the tenses wrong or the genders wrong, people are so thrilled if you make an effort. And learning a few phrases, I mean, obviously, hello, goodbye, thank you. But a few food phrases, asking, you know, learning how to ask for the, the wine list. Just one of those things. Yeah. It'll, I mean, the waiters just, they'll smile, they'll have much more fun with you. You'll get much more out of them. I think the danger of English is it makes you lazy and you've got to, we, we, all, we all have to get over that.
0: I think um, yeah, I'm a big fan of sort of learning menu speak in each, in each country and, and understanding whether you're going to France or Italy and, and being able to decipher a menu and knowing what those key phrases are for lamb and steak and fish and chicken and, and have an idea of what you're ordering. The, the equivalent is if somebody comes to the United States, if
2: you're Japanese or you're Portuguese, and you just walk into a coffee shop the way some Americans would do in Paris and just start speaking your language. Like if you went to, yeah. you know, a Japanese person would never walk to Starbucks here and just be like, I'll have a latte in Japanese. You'd be like, what the hell are you talking, you know? Yeah. But we do that.
0: Yeah, I and mean, you just expect people to you understand You expect people, what people about. to do it. You have a great tip, Ben, I love in, in the piece. Um, you suggest getting a haircut when abroad, which I, I've done before and I, I want to hear your take I love Well, it.
1: there's always that moment of utter terror because no matter how good your language is, I don't think anybody, you have to be relatively fluent to have hairdresser language. I mean, short back and sides in Japanese or yeah. Yeah. you know Cantonese, I mean,
0: it's not going to be easy. Yes. How do you say high and tight in Cantonese? Exactly, yes. so there's
1: a whole international language of, of hand signals involved with getting your hair cut, but there's something very intimate about getting your hair cut or getting your beard shaved and um, I think it's just a really interesting way to get, again, it's a bit like going to the same bar or the same coffee shop. You've, you go somewhere where um, people get their hairdress hair done. It is a local place by definition. There's right. no tourist hairdressers. No. It doesn't exist. So that's incredibly pleasing. And it's fun. And here's the thing, it'll grow back no matter how bad <laughs> right. eventually. I, I,
2: and it's not the time, it's a trim. You're not going in to be like, I want to do something new <laughs> with my hair. It's not the
0: time for experimentation. <laughs> I, <laughs> I actually did kind of do that. I was years ago when I was at GQ, I was in Milan in, in like July for fashion shows. I was Abominably hot, and they're not big on air conditioning and stuff in Italy. And I was like, you know what? I'm just cutting my hair off, I'm getting it all, and taking it all off. And I walked into one of these great old school Italian barber shops that have probably been there since 1918, with the marble floors and the four old guys and the chairs that are, you know, older than they are. And I was like, uh scusa. I'm da, <laughs> and they're like, bzz. I'm like, yeah. Bzz. I'm like trying to with hand motion. They're like, tutto. I'm like, si tutto. And he's like, okay. And I got my hair clipped and it was kind of awesome. It was a great experience. And I mean, it grew back. And it grew back. <laughs> yes, fortunately. But it was it was a liberating experience being in this foreign city and going to the cool old school place. And I have something that didn't exist
2: uh, 10 years ago, I think, when we traveled was the whole social media aspect. And you kind of touch on that. You know, and I, you know, I follow a lot of people on Instagram as you do, Ben, right? You got mm-hmm. a lot of... and. And sometimes I get envious, and then sometimes I'm just like, you know what, stop it. You're being obnoxious right now, posting every rosé that you're having at the Cote de Provence or whatever. What's your kind of mantra when it comes to social media?
1: Well, I mean, technology always advances faster than etiquette. I think social media, which is, let's not forget, is incredibly new. I think people are still finding a balance. And for me, the golden rule is the kind of things that annoy you about other people's posts will annoy other people about yours. So take it easy. The smug selfies. I, I think the the selfie stick.
2: Um, you're talking about selfies. The
1: wand of narcissus.
2: Yes, I that needs to <laughs> the that wand needs, of narcissus. The wand of narcissus that quickly needs to go away. I mean, we are where we are right now. Uh, One World Trade Center. We have the memorial right here, and you know, you walk outside on your way home, and you know, you see as many wands of. Uh, Narcissus, like as you do backpacks now,
1: I think actually that's true. But I think you also make another interesting point about you know where at the World Trade Center site, and you know you've got to be careful. I mean, there's a whole series of people taking photographs at Auschwitz, like selfies, smiling with thumbs up, and it's like just because there's social media involved doesn't make it social. And some things need respect, and some things you have to look at local customs and see what people feel. Um, And I think there's a again. I hope etiquette will catch up with technology, but we're lagging behind.
0: That's true. Um, Tipping, which I think is something Mm. that vexes all travelers, especially us Americans. We know how to tip in America and we're just completely just befuddled how to do it abroad. You write tipping is complex and often counterintuitive. If in doubt, follow local custom, but don't be shy about rewarding exemplary service and never shortchange a chambermaid. It's a hell of a job, you (laughs) slop.
1: Yeah. Um I mean tipping is I mean there are whole books written on tipping and it hits that wonderful moment because you know when you're traveling you know you feel awkward you feel sort of you know deracinated from where you are if it moves tip it I think is the is the bottom line.
0: And a technique which I like although I'm not so uh, deft at is you will t- hear people who when they check into a nice hotel they kind of tip on the front end. Whether it's the concierge or someone to let, so that they get better service while there, is that? I don't know how do you how do you do that? Listen,
1: I I'm actually terrified of concierges. I don't understand how they work. I've never used them. I somehow got this horrible feeling that there'll just be this huge charge at the end. I actually, someone needs to explain to me how concierges work because it baffles me. You
2: need to go to Tokyo and you will understand the power. Of the concierge. Of uh, the concierge.
1: Well, my wife is a travel writer, so I cleverly married my concierge, so it <laughs> yes. all just gets taken care of for me. So. I think
0: I do think if they, when you check into the hotel, if someone helps you out with something, whether it's the bad guy or you know the doorman, I th- I do think it's smart to slip him a twenty right right from the get go, and if, or that first day, if the concierge helps you and your kids get tickets for the amusement park, or whatever. Um, there's that notion of like tip as you go instead of just waiting till the very end, which I think is fine. Also, at the end, I, I often ask for envelopes and write down chambermaid, doorman, whatever. Right. And um, that, but
2: that's, I mean, you're talking about the U.S. because I've been abroad, you know, in Europe sometimes with my wife who knows the customs better than I do. And she will get mad at me because she thinks it's offensive
0: sometimes. I'm sure the person when being I, tipped is not getting mad well, at you. Well,
2: I don't know. If you're in Paris and, and you tip somebody $10 instead of a few coins or whatever, I, they might be like,
1: don't you think so,
0: Ben? No. Or no? You think no. everybody wants more money? Yes. If you're working in a hotel okay. and you have a silly uniform on, well, maybe you not... want more money.
1: OK. Yeah. If you're in the service industry, no one's ever been offended by cash. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, Ben, thank you very much for joining us. It's literally a pleasure. <laughs> literally. And congratulations on your James Beard Award. Next time, wear th- I want to see the medal around your chest. Your bare chest. It,
1: and then underneath it, the tattoo of the medal. <laughs> yes. So I can lift it off. And there it is.
0: <laughs> All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Shot, Andrew Knowlton. I'm Adam Rappaport. Welcome back to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm joined now by chef, restaurateur, publisher, author, business guy, Redskins fan, all that, David Chang. Dave, thanks for coming down.
3: Thanks for having me. Very excited to be at the new offices.
0: So Dave, you you have like a, I think, I mean, God bless you for this. You always seem like you have another thing happening, which you are now launching a new food delivery vehicle, machine, whatever called Maple. Um, A- how do you find the time to even come up with another thing? Like, you don't have enough going on your plate. And B, then let's talk about what maple is.
3: Wow. Well, the time crunch is something that I'm working on. I just generally think as I sort of take away my time in a kitchen, because it's just a matter of fact, I'm not cooking your food. Um, wait, wait, what? <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> uh, because we have restaurants all over the world now. Not all over, but in many places, and even in New York. And um, I just generally feel like I don't do anything anymore. If you're not working in the kitchen, I feel like you don't do anything. Not to make everyone feel like they're slumming around, but I think sitting at a desk or having meetings just generally doesn't feel like you're doing anything.
0: Yeah. Sort of the higher you get up on the food chain, the less you get to do what it is you actually enjoy doing or (laughs) what you sort of cut your teeth at, as they say.
3: Right. And that's sort of how I feel about the Maple Project. Not that I'm not going to be making the food again. And it's, in a way, to me, just another restaurant opening. Not just another restaurant opening per se, but... It was teaming up with these guys, Akshay and Caleb, who are sort of the brains behind it. And I viewed them as sort of this ultimate front of the house. And front of the house in a restaurant is really coordinating logistics and dealing with customer service issues. And as someone that is a cook or helping design the menu, I don't really care what the dining room looks like. That's yeah. their problem. And, and and if i using that sort of mentality, I thought, well, I don't think the future food's going to necessarily happen in a restaurant. Restaurants will always be important going forward. And we were messing around with doing deliverable lunches and stuff like that. But what we were coming up against the wall all the time was the technology end and the logistical end of deliverable food. So coming up with that solution wasn't going to happen overnight. So the idea of teaming up with these guys was something that was very, very exciting. And they had this grand plan that was totally fucking insane. And when they pitched it to me, I was like, you guys are out of your mind. And they sort of to the, to the T really made everything happen. And right now we're in the process of unveiling it finally. And it was a simple, simple idea of food from an app that you order from. And you get three simple choices that were made with real technique and high quality products, no shortcuts.
0: And it's going to come from one central kitchen that is making food just for maple. This is not a restaurant. This is not coming from Sambar or momofuku no. or anything else. This is like, this is a focus purely on making food that can be delivered.
3: Right. And that was, so that's something that seems like a simple conceit, but it's not. Making food that's meant to be delivered.
0: Yeah. And I read about that and I was just like, wait, that's kind of genius. Because there's so many things you do order, like things like, I love French fries, but French fries don't typically travel well. By the time you get them, they're pretty soggy. And then there are other things that do travel well, but they need to be in the right container. And
3: And that's one of the things that, why we've never done that at Momofuku. When you eat Chinese food and I order a lot of delivered foods, that's sort of my go-to, or even Asian foods in general, because the process of delivery doesn't really diminish the experience had I eaten them in the restaurant, and-
0: Can you, do you do soup dumplings delivery?
3: No. Don't yeah. do that because it sticks why together.
0: Okay, so there's certain things that yeah right. that don't. But worry.
3: again, here's another thing: Would you ever order fish from delu- d- d- any fish? No, never. it's almost. But I don't never. order ever
0: fish ever, ever, even at restaurants,
3: even at restaurants.
0: Right? <laughs> 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 I mean, I'm kind of only half joking, right? but um,
3: but that's yeah. something that you but, would but why never do. Why, why is that? I don't because know. no one has ever honestly, as simple as that. Yeah. Sounds no one has ever taken the time t- to to make fish deliverable.
0: The typical delivery restaurant, they're taking stuff just off the menu that is meant to be served on a plate a la minute or whatever from the kitchen. You now are thinking about, no, no, no. Let's think about it in specifically in the form of delivery. Does this work delivered? It. If it doesn't work, we're not going to make it.
3: Right. And what's amazing with the team that Maple's assembled, at least on the logistical tech end, is… We're, even in a restaurant, you're constantly wanting data and that's why we're in the business because we're like data junkies at the end of the day because uh, you want a customer to be happy and you want to know immediately. And in this way, it's you, you get it from the travel time. So, for instance, if you're going to another building or two, diff- two separate buildings, they have two different logistical times for delivery. Over a period of time, we're going to know which building delivers faster, which has a slower doorman, which has a slower elevator. And we can calculate right. that. on the doorman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we can sort of make that recipe or cooking time for that specific yeah. building. And to me, that was really interesting.
0: Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, nowadays you can have, I mean, I when I call delivery in New York, let mean talk about this, people in New York City deliver get a lot of delivery. And when I call the places that don't have my number and credit card already on file, I'm like, dude, what are you guys doing? There's this one <laughs> pizza place near me that my son likes. And every time I have to give my address and my phone number, and I'm just like, come on, you got to get with that
3: and it, that's, that's the thing it's I just don't even order from there yeah, anymore.
0: Just I can't. Wait. So so where is the actual central kitchen going to be? The
3: central kitchens in Brooklyn. Okay. We just finished it and uh it's pretty amazing actually.
0: So then so then how do you deliver in Manhattan? How does that so work? So
3: the goal is we're, we're starting off in the financial district. You guys are literally in the desir- delivery zone to start off with. Nice. Um people ask why the FiDi district partly because You it's just
0: you just like to say FiDi. FiDi as well. <laughs> I know. I
3: I hate it. But there's a lot of lunch, obviously, and there's just enough traffic uh, for dinner service as well. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do is to lunch and dinner, cool. uh, starting off with three options for lunch, three options for dinner, and Can, very you, give me, can you give
0: me an example? Like, what might a dinner option be? The
3: um, lunch, we just had uh, enchiladas, vegeta- vegetable enchiladas. Um, uh, what else was there? A roast chicken, and then uh, baked arctic char. And dinner is a little less, like, lunchy. You know what I mean? Course, like yeah, yeah. For lunch, you definitely want to have a salad component or something yeah. because people just want salads for lunch. And that's one of the main differences with dinner. It's a little bit more, not necessarily a splurge. I think with all the people involved with Maple, you know, there's there's literally like a, a category, a box, for a checklist for what one person might want. And we're trying to fill it all. I have a question. Yeah.
0: Can you get a, a license for beer and wine delivery with the with maple
3: uh How hopefully does, we'll be able to look at we're, we're working into all of these things mm-hmm. but right now it's just doing that does
0: anyone deliver booze is uh, I postmates know, postmates does but they'll pick they're buying it from someplace and no i it, think so they yeah. have their own like their own thing yeah. i wonder that would be really cool so
3: that's something that in terms of beverages and all of these things desserts these are all things that we want to do
0: Okay, so you recently, or a little while ago, wrote uh, an essay in GQ, which I thought was the best article ever written in Gen- <laughs> Gentleman's Quarterly Magazine, about how craft beer kind of sucks, and you, you're you're a Budweiser guy. Uh, how much flack did you take for that, and how did that piece come about?
3: Um, well, as you know, uh, having worked at GQ for many years, yes. uh, somehow Jim Nelson uh, like, fooled me into contributing to GQ and one of the things he wanted to do was like get my opinions on things. And uh, I was like, well, uh, (laughs) one of the things I genuinely enjoy is is light beer. I really like light beer. And people think that I'm being like a Williamsburg hipster by trying to be (laughs) ironic. And it makes me so mad. It makes me so intensely mad when someone's like, oh, they chuckle. I was like, no, I want a Budweiser. I want a Bud Light. Give me anything like those beers if you don't have them. (laughs) Yeah,
0: give me the Mexican version give me the Chinese (laughs) version because they're all really good and
3: I love eating food with them because they just they're a lot better to me than the fancy craft stuff and then Garrett Oliver wrote a response I've never received hate mail I got honestly two death threats yeah I was about to say so Garrett Oliver
0: from Brooklyn Brewery who's a long time lowest hanging fruit
3: response I mean because listen I just, I love, I love those beers, but I don't want to drink them all the time. I want to, the, I like those beers because I can drink a lot of them and they pair well with everything. I happen to like a lot of spicy foods. I love burgers. I love French fries. I love things that are salty, crispy, sour, sweet. All of these things pair really well with beers yeah. like
0: Budweiser. So. And as you, as you brought up in the piece, it's, it's akin to champagne, which is not which is a so deep, good. rich sort of earthy wine. It's, and then it's a all and these crisp. beer
3: nerds start like, well, it's not true with chocolate and it's not true with like certain foods and i'm like i've never seen nerves touched like that article i I yeah you know what i don't want to talk about
0: with people beer Beer. i want to drink a beer i don't want to talk about it but i didn't know
3: i didn't know how intensely passionate (laughs) these beer nerds (laughs) were and i i just opened up pandora's box and now it's just like ridiculous like it's it's sort of ridiculous and i'm okay we open it up and uh so be it
0: but our but our fine friends at budweiser were happy about this oh
3: man that that was awesome they're based, They've basically
0: given you the private jet whenever you need, it, right?
3: I had no idea it was going to be like that, and they invited me to be a judge for like this this burger event. So I'm, I'm excited about it because, uh, you know, I <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So all those beer nerds out there, I think they have to deal with it. So,
0: all right, here we go. Lightning round with David Chang. We're starting with the important questions: nachos or wings?
3: Uh, wings. wings. You know what? I, I love wings. I just – sometimes the nacho cheese I'm not a huge fan of.
0: Oh, interesting. Um, all right. I'll buy that one. Uh, this is a tough one. General Cho's or Kung Pao? <sighs> wow.
3: Good Kung Pao can really change your life too. But overall, there's more bad Kung Pao out there than bad General So. So I'm going Ooh. to Ben Because you even go to the airport and get really <laughs> yeah. good General So's because it's almost – Like at the panda like, place? It's, yeah. it's It's, it's – Generally good all the time.
0: That's why it's called the general. <laughs> yeah. It's generally good. All right, so you're flying long distances for work. Ambien or The Cabernet?
3: Ambien, 100%.
0: Fast and Furious or the Die Hard franchise?
3: I think overall Fast and Furious has been stronger than Die Hard. Wow. Die Hard 1 and 2, very good. Yeah. Very, very good. I- no, no,
0: no, Die Hard 3 was Samuel L. That was a good one. <sighs> Where they're up in Harlem and everything, yeah, no, and but I, you know, what I like board. about that because of
3: the water, water, like the the the, the puzzles they had. I like that, but I liked I heard too because it took place in Dallas Airport, our D- sort Dulles, of yes. local <laughs> airport growing up. <laughs> um, but Fast and Furious overall has been like pretty good, yeah, and there's, I, that, and, good, and there's more of them. It's it's an airplane movie for me.
0: Uh, fun bunch or the Hogs?
3: Oh man, Fun bunch because you know what? I mean. They had Art Monk, Gary Gary Clark. Clark. Can or bottle?
0: Bottle. Um, you know, our go-to question uh, to close out the the lightning round is always olive oil or butter. But I guess, do you even
3: do you cook with either of those at your restaurants? Um, I get in a lot of trouble because I don't give a shit about olive oil. I mean, I use <laughs> olive oil, but I genuinely think that cooking with extra virgin olive oil is one of the dumbest things you could ever do. Uh-oh. Yes. <laughs> Listen. When you cook it at a certain temperature, all the beautiful properties of olive oil get blown away. So, when so, I have an option between extra virgin olive oil as even a finishing oil or burnoisette, I'm fucking taking burnoisette, which is brown butter, every time. That's going I, back to your
0: French date. No, it's right.
3: just not even French. It's what tastes better. It's <laughs> 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 just want to brown milk solids. Win out
0: every time. Milk solids for the win. All right, ladies and gentlemen, David Chang, thank you so much for joining us on the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Really happy
3: to be here, guys. Thanks again.
0: Thank you. All right, welcome back. Joining me now is Restaurant and Drinks editor Andrew Knowlton, author of a piece in our new May travel issue called Liquid Tokyo. Now, uh, am I to understand, Andrew, that we sent you to Tokyo to get drunk for ten days? Yeah, I was
2: pinching myself the whole time on on the plane over there. I was like, my wife was with me, and I was like, they, bit, you know, they bid on this. Can you believe it? You no, know, everybody goes to Tokyo for. You know, in our in our industry, for the food. They go for, like, they want to eat at Jiro. You know, I dream yeah. of Jiro. Yeah. They want to have that sushi. They want to nerd out on
0: ramen. They want the Kobe beef. They want and, the Kobe yeah, beef. Understandably. Uh, totally. Yes, phenomenal, mind-blowing eating system Yes,
2: I did that. I tried to do that. But my thing was, I had I, been to Tokyo once, but that was way back when, when I didn't know, you know, a whiskey from a, a gin. And...
0: I'm probably pretty sure you did.
2: I did, but I, I wanted to just like dive deep into like the drinking culture of Tokyo because it's I think what makes it obviously, you know, you've heard stories about these salary men, the the, the businessmen who will just pour out of these bars at eleven fifty nine because famously the Tokyo subway stops at midnight. So you've yeah. got to get on the train to go to wherever you're going. Or else you're sleeping on the side. You're sleeping and you will see that. Yeah. Or they have these little like one room. They look like little coffin rooms, little that, pods. pods that people will sleep in overnight in case they miss their train. Anyway. So you see them pour out. So I'd seen that when I was there before, but then, you know, all these, all these bartenders would come back and tell me about these amazing, like high end cocktail bars that, you know, would, would take 45 minutes to chisel the ice for your, for your cocktail. And, and then you have the amazing kind of lost in translation moments at the Park Hyatt, the famous movie, where a lot of the hotels there have these amazing bars on the 65th floor, all these panoramic views. So I wanted to kind of immerse myself in liquid for six days and kind of do it high and low. And also, when you're in Tokyo, you already feel drunk. Like when you step off the plane, you're drunk.
0: I've been I've been once, and it takes several days to get your bearings. I mean, the, the jet jet it's like a what a sixteen hour time 16, difference. Yeah, yeah, and it it takes you for your mind and your your belly and for everything to sort of get in sync. But uh, and it, I remember the first yeah. morning I was there. Went to Skiji Fish Market, where the famous fish market where you buy the you know hundred thousand dollar tunas and all that, and everyone, you know, all that stuff. And went to a little sushi stand outside of it, some of the best sushi you're ever gonna have. And it was eight a.m. and I'm drinking one of those like 20 ounce Sapporos. like yeah, Sapporos. Yeah. And I'm like, this is insane. I don't know. I mean, it's eight AM Tokyo time. I don't know what time it is right. in America, but I'm just okay, I'll have a beer. And one of the things that's difficult about Tokyo, especially when it comes to drinking and, and
2: a lot of these establishments that I that I went to. Is they're not street level. It's not like no. walking down Broadway and it's like, oh, there's Balthazar. Let's duck in there. No, in Tokyo, Balthazar would be on the twentieth floor of an apartment complex.
0: Yeah, you really need to know where you're going in Tokyo. The addresses are hard to find. The addresses aren't necessarily in a sort of a linear, no. numerical sort of pacing. It no. it is confusing. All right, let's let's start on the high end. Um, on that sort of mixology level, which has been such a craze in America for the last five, 10 years. And, and how much of that does come from Tokyo? What are, what are those bars like? The really sort of meticulous high-end ones? Well,
2: I think they were, they were doing the high-end thing way before. I mean, obviously it started in the U S but they kind of took it and ran with it, you know, after world war II and it became an art form. It's, it's not drinking over there. It's, it's a night out, you know, all the bartenders are dressed in white tuxedos, hand chiseled ice Every other high-end bars, I would I would say a white dinner jacket, white dinner jacket, not a tuxedo, a white dinner jacket. You get snacks the minute you sit down. It's a big, it's a, it's a big deal. And 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 I'm, you know, a lot of the people out there will have heard of maybe some of these, but if you haven't, you kind of need to go on a crawl when you're there. And and I'm talking about places like Star Bar, High Five, Mori Bar, Tender Bar, Bar Radio, like, you know. This is the mecca
0: for bartenders,
2: professional bartenders. They want to go and see the professionals do it.
0: And you watch the guys hand chip the ice and measure the ingredients in beautiful crystal cut crystal. It's just the
2: style with yeah. which they do it. I don't know. It's it's like going to London and seeing a tableside side tartare or something made. It's just like professional. Like You yeah. have nothing like it in the United and
0: States. I, I went to one and it was literally, I think, on the unmarked door, second floor, yeah. dark hallway. And you walk in and there's... Like twelve Corbusier chairs on this little bar, and you can't get in if you don't. If there's not a seat. There's no, no, no. no standing. No, no, no
2: it, you can't just walk into a bar there. Yeah. You have to. Ha- at these kind of bars, you have to have a reservation. You can't. I've seen it. Too many Australians and Americans walk into Star Bar, and, and the guy's like, "There could be eight seats right yeah. there. You're not getting in." The the find of this trip. So though, how do you make
0: the reservation? How do you? What do you do?
2: Well, that's that's the funny thing about in general a tip for Japan uh, restaurants or bars. Concierge, you have to go through your hotel concierge mm. to to get reservations at any of these places. Uh, David Kinch, who's the super talented chef at, at Manresa, told me before in I went in Northern, in Northern California, California, not in Tokyo, not in Tokyo. He said, "Look, a lot of these places that you you were able to go to ten years ago, they would not have let Western people in the restaurant. They're they you know they think we're crass or crude or just we don't get it." And the only way they don't want to deal with you trying broken English or faxing them something, the only way they'll do it is if you stay at a decent hotel, and the hotel vouches for you and being like, "We're trying to for Knowlton San," and and that's the only way. Unless you know David Kinch or yeah. David Chang, you ain't getting into some yeah. of these places.
0: Um, that's great advice. You also in 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 your in your tips uh, for the for the intrepid traveler, you say. Um, in in your piece, Liquid Tokyo, in the May issue of Bon Appetit, uh, you say sip whiskey highballs. I I think of whiskey highballs as a very Mad Men sort of thing. Like what's 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 the story?
2: So everyone knows Suntory, make it Suntory times from from, from Los Inter- in translation, with- which is the it's the Jack Daniels of of Japan when it comes to whiskey. I mean, they probably own a huge part of the market, but a few years ago they were having these problems nobody was drinking whiskey all the old men were dying so they <laughs> damn old men. the old men were dying and and the same thing happening in the u.s and the but, kids
0: were drinking red bull and vodka over yeah there? They,
2: they weren't drinking whiskey let's just put it that way so they and, and, and there's this one brand of suntory whiskey called kaku k-a-k-u it's a beautiful old school bottle like old men would drink it so a few years ago they just started this push like let's sell whiskey highballs like put it in nightclubs, put it in yakitori joints, put it in sushi joints. They started putting it in cans. And what
0: what qualifies as a whiskey highball?
2: Whiskey highball is is simply just kaku whiskey, any kind of whiskey, with um, soda water, sparkling water, and ice. ice. And in Tokyo, you'll always get it with a squeeze of uh, lemon.
0: Another point you make in your in your Liquid Tokyo article, you say, hang with the coolest man in Tokyo. That's, that's quite a declaration. Who, who is the coolest man in Tokyo? So I don't know his first
2: name, but everyone calls him Kobayashi-san. So when you're giving respect to somebody in, in Japan, you put san on the end of it. So oh. Kobayashi-san. So a friend took me here. It's called JBS. It's just a stone's throw um, from Shibuya. Yes. which is the big kind of crazy Times Square area. And it's it's one of these places on the fourth floor. You walk up. You're like, okay, I'm lost. I'm lost. I'm lost. I'm here. And you walk in and it's wall to wall, probably, like, I don't know, the size of a your average garage, two, two-car garage in America. And it's lined with albums, vinyl, wall to wall. And he's got these two humongous speakers that somebody told me is worth $100,000, all these turntables. And... It's based on the old jazz kisas, which were these things after World War II where Japanese people just sit around these kind of clubs and listen to vinyl, jazz on vinyl, smoke cigarettes, and kind of want to be American, I guess. So it's kind of a modern day thing. But So I was there, and he serves $4 gin and tonics. So we were with friends, and we were trying to stump him and my friend in terms of requests requests you can request anything you want cannonball Adderley you want he's got every Miles Davis he's got every jazz he's got every hip hop
0: so you're sitting there drinking gin and tonic for four dollars what kind of gin you get to request the type of gin usually or? Seagram's Seagram's is right. what he has old school
2: very patient speaks a little bit of English and he was a salary man who quit his job which is a huge deal in Japan yeah. to be a business person to go start a record bar um, so anyway, my friend was like, okay, I'm going to stump him. I'm going to request Shalimar. Do you know who Shalimar is? I mean, kinda?
0: I mean, yes. I'm, I don't know Shalimar personally, but yes, I'm familiar so, with their Ove.
2: So Kobayashi-san slowly, you know, he moves kind of cool and goes around the bar and pulls out three Shalimar records. <laughs> one song, which was... They also did Dancing in the Sheets for the Footloose album, Shalimar, mm, if you don't know. How? And one more thing about Shalimar, which Kobayashi-san told us... The band was started by Don Cornelius, the founder of the Soul Train. Yeah, And Don the original Cornelius. singer, one of the original singers, there was three of them in Shalimar, Jody Watley. Anyone know Jody Watley? I'm looking for a real love. No, keep on, Keep going. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Anyway, so you learn all this stuff. So Kabuyashi-san taught Ta- you this. He taught me wow. everything. He taught me everything. <laughs> he knows everything about everything, and that's why I say... I wanna be Kobayashi san when I grow up.
0: But you're never gonna be. But it's something no. something something to strive for. To strive if you for. can be half the cool man that Kobayashi san is, you'll be a pretty cool dude. That's my goal. All right. So my question is so you're you're drinking a lot, you're going to all these different places. I mean Let's talk about hangovers. Let's talk about did you exercise? How did you manage like your body over the course of these eight days? Well, in Tokyo? I,
2: I stayed at a very nice hotel and it had an amazing gym on the 98th floor <laughs> that I would, you know, I was too scared to run in Tokyo. It was just too much. It was just too much to handle. So I did that, but one thing I also did is when you get on the subway in the morning, all the- The subway system's awesome there. It's the, it's the I would eat off the floor in the subway. Like nobody, it's it's immaculate. And
0: after nine whiskey se- uh, highballs, you right. might have.
2: So if you go through the subways, you'll start to notice all these like uh, cartoons and characters with ties, like a men's tie, tied around their head. Mm. And that is the Japanese- kind of sign for hangover the businessman hangover so
0: in the morning is that that's the morning after What that night when you're getting drunk all the the
2: time there's ads everywhere and they're all promoting these drinks that will bring life back to you Mm. um and i i found one um which you can actually buy in new york city it's called uh pocky sweat and it's like a
0: gatorade (laughs) they might want to uh rebrand it in america well
2: I bought it the other day at Sunrise Market down in the East Village in New York and it, it works wonders. It's like a Gatorade. It's got a lot of electrolytes. It's it's a little less sweet. Mm, but kind there's of citrusy? Citrusy? Or? Yeah, it's it's kind of a milky white thing. It's not something that you're like, wow, that looks really good. <laughs> it's called Pocky Sweat and it's milky white. <laughs> but it, it works. Next time you have a hangover, I will go get you some and um but you know, I'm a prof- I'm a professional drinker, so I know I know what to do. Plus, at the end of the night, you know you can get a $4 bowl of ramen hmm. or yeah. what my Forti- thing
0: fortifying
2: fortifying or my pro move is surprisingly going to the 711 which is on every single corner yep. and another tip two tips 711s in Tokyo do not have atm fees Mm -hmm. no ATM fees and also they have free Wi Fi in the stores wow so those are two that's the reason that a lot of my friends would go to
0: 7-Eleven just hang out there and they're really clean and well lit
2: they are and the food there is great because it's turned over and the, the Japanese will not tolerate crappy food yeah I mean there might be MSG and you know I have no problem with that but like you know, there's not, there's
0: no like four day old wiener just rotating on no, the grill there. No, 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 there is not. There's not. Uh, speaking of, you say scarf stuff on sticks, and I assume we're talking about yakitori. That's what you are worried about in the
2: piece. yeah. Those, I mean, I think you know, I did, I did a lot of the high end sushi, and and I, you know, you do the ramen where you go in and sit elbow to elbow. But I think my favorite style of restaurant in Japan is is the yakitori, and that's you know, you get the skewers. Um, skewers of what skewers of i mean yakitori is technically chicken but anything from the chicken butt which is that little knob that you kind of take off of uh can you describe what that is that little that little where the cavity where the cavity i'm just gonna gonna leave you out where the cavity opens it's that little on a turkey it's that one little thing that you kind of pull off Anyway, the fatty part. The fatty part. Yeah. They have the oysters. They have, you
0: know, duck hearts. They and have it's brushed with sort of a sweet glaze. You got super crispy. Tare, and- super crispy,
2: smoky. And the places they do it are usually smoky and is a bunch of old men manning the grill. I mean, I, one of the places I mentioned, uh, Takachan, which is in Ginza, was three generations were there. So there was a 95 year old man. His son and then that guy's son so three generations grilling yakitori yeah you're pounding you know beer and more whiskey highballs and you know you walk out and you're paying like twenty dollars for one of the best meals you've ever had in your life
0: i think what's fascinating about tokyo is that stuff that we in america would think of almost as fast food uh, they still consider it an art form, and there's a way yes. to do yakitori properly. And whether it's making the tare or the right, you know, the high carbon charcoal and all that sort of stuff, right? And I they mean, really do it right.
2: And that's and that's one thing, you know, in America, you usually don't want to eat at train stations, uh, especially when they're underground, like five floors. <laughs> and and when you go to Tokyo, like sometimes the best ramen and yakitori places are actually in you know these subway stations.
0: Um, what about karaoke? Did you do any karaoke? I did there? do karaoke. Don't you have to? It was like a law.
2: Yeah. Well, there you can't. It's it's like Starbucks in the United States. Every block there's this this chain called Big Echo. Oh yeah, uh, of course, Big Echo. And it's like twelve stories, and we always try to get every one of them. Usually has a Hello Kitty room, so it's like all decorated <laughs> in Hello Kitty and all that. But you have to reserve we found out you have to reserve those like well oh, yeah. in advance. <laughs> yeah. So we didn't get into the Hello That's, Kitty. Well,
0: you should have talked to your concierge about that.
2: Yeah, they probably would have been like, We can't help you there. There's there's a bunch of fourteen year old girls who have got that all filed up. But so yeah, I mean, yeah, karaoke. You gotta do karaoke. You know, four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You know. And a lot of people just do it, you know, if you miss your train. Well, let's just go do karaoke, and then we'll go to work in the next morning. Because the thing is, most of the karaoke bars also have showers. Wow! Yeah, I'm telling in, you, in in the karaoke rooms, not in the karaoke <laughs> rooms.
0: Well, Andrew, I'm so glad you survived your uh, your eight or ten days trip to Tokyo and featured in the new issue of Bon Appetit. Uh, it's Liquid Tokyo. You can look for it online at bonappetit.com. Um, thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for letting me go to Tokyo. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>
1: This podcast is brought to you by executive producer Belle Cushing and project manager Carrie Polis with editing by Mitra Kaboli. The theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.